Welcome to Capturing COVID, a podcast that takes experiences and turns them into memories. I'm sure everyone can think of ways that COVID-19 has impacted you. Whether it's working from home for the first time, treating positive COVID-19 patients on the front lines as a medical professional, or making critical decisions for children returning to school. We created this podcast to document the stories and the history of COVID-19 from various perspectives. We are passionate about giving our audience a resource to listen, relate, and reminisce on a time in history that the world will never forget, the COVID-19 pandemic. Tune in for a 60-minute episode with various special guests and inspiring stories with me, Jason Newland, a pediatric infectious disease physician at Washington University in St. Louis, and the Schnook Family Endowed Chair of Pediatric Infectious Disease at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Welcome to our first podcast, Capturing COVID. I'm super excited to have our very first guest, a good friend of mine, Dr. Luke Starnes. Just a brief introduction. Uh, Luke has a very fun, fascinating educational and work history. He uh, got his BA in biology at Hanover College. He was a cross country runner and he can run a sub 240 marathon, super important. He then came to Wash U, Washington University in St. Louis for those who aren't familiar and might be listening from afar and got his PhD in microbial pathogenesis in Scott Holcren's lab. Is that correct, Luke? No, I was in David Sibley's lab. Sorry, David Sibley's lab. I just think you overlap with all those people. Parasites, E. coli, you know. Same yeah, thing. same deal, right? Same bacteria. Then you go and become an undergraduate professor at Hanover, right? Correct. Right, so then he says, I'm going to go teach young people and influence them, and he does. And then says, well, you know, I think I want to do something else. So he comes back and goes, gets his nursing degree at Goldfarb here. That's here, right here on the Wash U BJC campus. And then he ends up being a nurse. I think initially you were over on Hemonk at Barnes Jewish Hospital. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Bone marrow transplants. Does that for a while. Pretty tough work. Pretty amazing work. Then I, I actually then meet him when he's an infection preventionist at St. Louis Children's Hospital back in 2016, 17, maybe 18. Then he goes back to Hemonk, does some pediatric Hemonk stuff. Then he lands at Missouri Baptist Hospital as an infection preventionist. Does that does that sum it up pretty well? Yes. Okay, I'm not going to give the next part of the story because I think we got to stop there. Okay, sounds good. All right, so really the goal here, we're, we're creating our memories. We're going to re- relive some memories of the pandemic because selfishly, I want to make sure we have them and maybe some other people want to listen to them and maybe in the future you'll need them. All right, so I know Luke. Um, when I first arrived in St. Louis in uh, 2016, I got to know Luke at the hospital, and then we became friends. And our families would have dinner together. I have much older kids than his, so but Sam and Lucy. Um, I feel like I've known Sam since he was like barely born. I guess he was like one or two. He would have been, yes. Yeah, and then Lucy was young, and I used to. I not used to. I still take. I've taken Lucy to movies and fed her popcorn and soda. For a number of years uh, and plan on doing that again this weekend. And so we've just been friends for a long time. And that's why he's the first guest. Now, I also had to make sure I got to thank Sheridan and Gabby, um, Sheridan Thomas, Gabby Smith for helping us put this podcast on. So thank you guys. So now we're going to talk about the pandemic. Luke, my memory of the pandemic with you is early March of 20. Mm -hmm. I was at your house with you, J.O. His wife is Julie O'Neill. We call her J.O. And we were having Indian food. Luke has... Priya, North St. Louis, McKelvey Road, near McKelvey Road in Dorset. Fantastic Northern Indian food. They're not sponsoring this, by the way. We were having Indian food, and Luke and Lucy with the church were going to go to a nursing home. Now, mind you guys, right? At this point, in March of 2020, we knew about what was happening in Seattle's nursing home. And I said, guys, I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't do it. That sounds asking for trouble. Luke, tell me what you remember from that day. 
So that evening, I, I remember us sitting around and we had a sporting event on. It, like we were streaming something, we were sitting at the table and, and listening. And then there was the breaking news of, of the test and like the first positive test. I may be mixing them around in the, in the county. They're in the county. It was in the city because there was the press conference and everything came in. Well, the first person was, a, I think, a college student had been in Italy and had come back. And that was also the, the parent who had, got, who had broken quarantine and went to a, to a dance, I think, was around that time. Right. And so Lucy was in Cherub Choir. And one of the activities with Cherub Choir with the church was to go to a nursing home in Kirkwood. I can't remember the name. It, it doesn't really matter at this point. And this is something that Miss Patty, who was the choir director, had done forever. And in light of everything that was going on, I had called her after that conversation, like you and I had spoken and, and then you had left and Julie and I continued to talk about it. And I called Patty and I was like, I don't think this is a good idea to send a group of K through second graders into a nursing home and, and have them sing. And she's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll think about that. And she went to call, then the next morning she called the nursing home and they were like, no, we want them to come anyways. The residents would be more gutted to have it canceled than to see them and take the risks. And so we, Joe and I made the decision that we weren't going to let Lucy go. And Miss Patty was, was mad at me. And I think Miss Patty held that grudge un until, you know, she, she got rest her soul passed away, not from COVID, but that, that was probably the first real thing that we had to deal with. Yeah, that was, I and mean, those were those hard decisions. And, and, and right, like in retrospect, at that point in the pandemic, the kids were, weren't the ones getting it or get, like they could give it, but they weren't getting it. Right. But the adults that went were the, were the bigger problem. Right. And there were going to be adult chaperones were going to be the potential bigger problem. But for sure, thankfully, it didn't get into that nursing home. Cause if it would have gotten to that nursing home, the mortality rate would have been not in, I mean, it would have been national news for sure. And not for the right reasons. Correct. Okay, so here you are, March of 2020. You're an infection preventionist. And essentially, right, Nancy Messina in late February said, it's not about whether it's going to be here. It's about when it's going to be here. So I want you to just walk through a little bit what it was like as an infection preventionist. So if you're listening to this, you know what an infection preventionist, let's be clear. Like, you should know about them now because they're the ones that keep you safe in the hospital from getting things that you don't want to get. It makes you have safety in our hospitals. Tell us, Luke, what was it like in that role? You're supposed to pro help protect people, keep them safe from this virus in a hospital. Right. It was a little nuts, I think would be the easiest way to think about it. You know, one of, one of the future guests is Dr. Hillary Babcock and she and Rachel Snyder's, you know, after we had sort of come through this, looked in retrospect and I think they would be okay with me saying this. When all of this started happening, they were like, holy cow, it's our asses on the line. We better get this right. And the BJC system, which MOBAP is part of, has an unbelievable network called IPEC. And so all of the hospitals, all of the infection preventionists get together. And so we had this support network that other people didn't have that we could bounce ideas off of. We could think about things. But when you're starting out not knowing exactly what you're dealing with, you have to look at you know, what you know from other respiratory viruses. So, okay, we know that contact probably wouldn't be necessary in an adult setting, 
but we don't know that. So we should wear gowns and we should wear gloves and then we should wear a mask and should we wear eye protection? Well, we haven't in the past, but maybe we should now, but not knowing what we were dealing with and not knowing if the patient had it. And so you have to think about also the timeline was just as flu season was starting to tail off. So you have this respiratory thing and you have flu overlapping it, then you always have colds in, in and around it. But for us, it was, okay, what can we do to have this basic information? And so we, we stood up, each HSO stood up a, a command center of sorts. HSO is basically one of the hospitals in the system. Just so people know, go ahead, a hospital in our system. A hospital yeah, right. in the system. So everybody had their own setup and we got a seat at the table and my boss, so I was just a specialist when, when all of this started. So an infection prevention specialist, my manager, I think she was out of town or went to spring break with her son, like right around this time frame. And so she's like, okay, so you can go and sit on, on this board uh, in, my, in my stead until I get back. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. And so we had to develop like the timelines of who would we test? How would we test? If we had tests, what we went through to sort of walk through that. Originally, that very first meeting, we were in the library at MOBAP. And the library at MOBAP, if you've ever been out there, is about maybe two sizes of your office, Jason. So, you know, standard office times two, chairs on top of chairs, computer terminals, everything. All of us in that room, no masks, no hand hygiene. And, and now you couldn't, you couldn't even think about that. And so we went from that very first meeting to as things progressed to moving into the auditorium and opening up all of the cubicle walls. So it's a, a huge space and everybody had a taped off space and we were all greater than six feet apart. And we still weren't wearing masks at that point, but we would have multi-daily check-ins of, okay, what are the supplies? How many tests have we had? I'm, get, I'm getting way ahead, but that, that very first meeting was, okay, so this is what we're going to have. And these are the things that we're thinking about. And it really was a complete unknown. And Complete unknown. That is the, that's the word. It was a complete unknown. And now three, as we're sitting here looking back three years later, it's hard sometimes to even remember how complete unknown it was. Yes, because we, so the IPEC group meets the first Thursday of every month. And collectively, we would go to a central location where they do education. It's in Brentwood. And I can remember Chris Blank, who was the, or who is, he's the occupational health IP consultant. I don't remember Chris's full title, but he's the guy who gives a report every month. And he says, this is a, an infection of note. And he always talks about something in Africa. And we're talking about some Ebola and maybe some measles in Afghanistan. And at the November meeting, he said, oh, there's this flu or respiratory of unknown origin in China. And we were all like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, not, not a big deal. And, and we kind of went on about it. And so then we had our December meeting, and then we had our January meeting, and then we had our February meeting, and we're like, oh, my goodness, um, that little thing that Chris mentioned is, is, is not just that little thing. And I remember Hillary talking, oh, you know, and this was at the March meeting, oh, maybe 1,000. 10,000 tops here, here in the US was, was sort of the number and someone had pressed her. They were like, okay, tell us what you think. And well, now we know that that's not what it was. You talked about IPEC. And, and again, I want to reiterate this. IPEC was essentially all the hospitals in the BJC system have been working together for decades. This isn't just, this is decades on how to make sure we are synced and we are doing this together 
but it also serves as like a learning group. And so when you're faced with the unknown, having others who are working together in the unknown was comforting. Wouldn't you agree that that was a comfort to have this group that you could bounce things off of? Yes, completely. And early on, we would have a daily touch base and it was led by Rachel and Hillary and Casey Sherman. And they had, I don't know if she was an intern or what, but she kept notes and we had this billboard. And this was the first time that we used virtual meetings and, and things of that nature. And it, it was, it was a great comfort because you could bounce ideas off. And sometimes we just spun our wheels. Well, do you wear eye protection? How many times can you reuse a mask? You know, an infection preventionist doesn't ever want you to wear a mask and gloves out in the hallway, let alone a gown. And, and at one point we, we were like, okay, well, we don't have any gowns. So as long as you're caring for only COVID patients, you can wear your gown from patient A to patient B to patient C, unless it is just like visibly nasty soil. So let's get into this, right? Talk about the personal protective equipment. So PPE, talk about this, right? That was obviously one of the very first concerns was, oh my goodness, we don't have enough of this. Go. You knew how to deal with this. Yeah, we we didn't we didn't know we didn't know exactly how much we had. And so we would have at that meeting, our supply chain person would discuss we have this many flats of gloves and this many flats of masks and this many gowns. What's a flat? I think a flat, so it's a pallet. And on a pallet. Oh, yeah, that, that tells me even more. A pallet and a flat. I'm guessing that's a lot. Right. Yes, it's a lot. But when you think about how many you would go through, yeah, I don't know as I think about that. Like we knew they had calculated it out. And then he would say, we would have this many days on supply. And what, and what, and how many days did you get down to? At one point, we had, I think we had three days in house. At, at one point early on. And then they would start sourcing other things. Like you can talk to some of the bedside nurses and typically at BJC, we wear the yellow gowns and they're hot, but, but they're not terrible. And then when things got really bad, they were wearing ponchos. It was almost like a poncho. It was a, it was a shower curtain and it was blue and it was hot as hell and you just sweat through it. These blue, these blue things they brought in, I thought, I go, I never thought I was going to wish to have the yellow gowns back. I mean, they were awful. They were hot. They had us. I don't. Yeah. I mean, it was. And I remember someone asked me, they, they had like one in one of the I thought it was in a gown or something had some piece of paper in it and was like, these aren't a it had some statement that you're like, should this even be in? The, you're like, right. Should we even be wearing this? And but that's how dire it was. Right. Like trying to get any of this stuff. N95 masks were like, you had to go check one out. Talk about that. Well, and reusing them. There, there were processes in place to reprocess N95s and you would sign it in and then you had to make sure that your N95 fit you and you got yours back. Because an N95, if, if you're not, everyone has heard of them now, but unfortunately people don't fully appreciate that they are all fit to the person. And your face is formed, so you have to be tested. And you have to be cleanly shaven. Everyone that's, you're not going to see our faces because Luke and I both have uh, faces for radio. So you're going to only, you're not, but we are both fully bearded men. And like right now, if we were in the middle, if it was three years ago, 
I'd be shaving this thing off because you knew you were going to be wearing an N95 all the stinking time. And I wasn't going to go get this papper thing that I, you know, that was going to be harder to lug around anyway. Yeah. So it, it, it is, and they hurt and they, and I, you can't breathe well in them. I don't no, think, I mean, no. mm -mm. I, I wear them when I have to, but my goodness to wear those things all day, whoo, those surgeons and those other folks who are doing that all power to you. I think the other crazy thing with the shortage was how the community stepped in in a lot of ways oh we don't have any masks we had a table set up in the back of the conference room at mobat and community houses nursing homes retirees everyone's on complete lockdown they made all of these cloth masks and we had piles and piles of cloth masks in the back and so people could come and collect them and then people said oh well you need eye protection let's what can we come up with eye protection and as an infection preventionist, I would always get the call down. They were like, oh, well, Luke, will you come and inspect this? And, and does this pass muster? Like, oh, my gosh, what, is, what does this mean? Does this pass muster? Does it, you know, touch the forehead and, and surround the eyes? Um, I don't know about that one on this one. You need to come see this. Okay. And, you know, I'm in my office. We're dealing with all these sorts of things. And I go down into the room. And this person from the community had sent in a... Dole juice box, a grapefruit container. You know, they're the, the 750 mils, the plastic, and she had cut it in half. So it was cut in half lengthwise and then turned upside down. So the spout was at the bottom. And then she had riveted in two rubber bands and she pulled them over your head. And so then the plastic would cut into your forehead and then it would dip down to like, just past your chin was where the bottle was. And I said, well, it, it technically satisfies the criteria. It touches the forehead. It covers the eyes. It wraps around the eyes and it can be cleaned. Like it was plastic. So you could wipe it off. But thankfully we never had to use any of those. Things. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. Um, all right. So, I mean, we could talk for an hour on just PP. Tell me about testing. One of the hardest parts at the beginning of the pandemic from what I think was, was having to be the gatekeeper of tests. And I remember vividly, we, we had to basically take away the pagers from our fellows because they couldn't get any rest because they were just getting page after page if somebody qualified for a test. So think of it now, right? Like if you have any symptoms, you get a test. That wasn't how it worked back in March of 2020. I remember getting called from literally, I think five until like 11 repeatedly. Can I get this test? Can I get this test? Can I get this? I probably said no every time. And then I remember an ICU person goes, Jason, that person was positive. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. I mean, this is a no-win situation. So I can't imagine what it was like for you because I was having to be a gatekeeper at St. Louis Children's at times, and it was awful. Yes, terrible. I mean, so if we think about it, early on, only the CDC had tests. So if you wanted a test, you had to complete paperwork, send it to the CDC, have it approved, and then somehow get the test expedited to your institution. Now, when we think about the tests, we all have the capabilities to perform the test on the front end. So it's just a cotton, not a cotton swab, but it's that, that vinyl swab that you use to tickle people's brains and you put it into the viral media and, and away it goes. But they had the, the patient had to check so many boxes to be eligible. And the first time that I really had to deal with being the gatekeeper of it, my parents had come in town. They were staying downstairs and in Lucy's room and Lucy had been kicked out and I, I was on call and I got a phone call at 
2.30, 2 a.m. from uh, Joe Gaukowski. He's the head of emergency medicine at MOBAP. Spectacular. I loved working with Joe. Joe and I had lots of conversations. And he, at first, was like, you know, it's like standing on an island and you can see the storm in the distance, but you don't know if that storm is going to blow to the east or to the west, or is it going to hit you straight on? And so though the, I remember him telling me that, and he, he was like, here it comes, but, but what's going to happen? Oh, drop the mic on that analogy. Whoa. Yeah, it was crazy. And he also was the first one that had talked about the institution out of Seattle associated with UW that did all of the modeling. And so we would look at the models and think about, okay, how many, how many ICU beds do we have? How many hospital beds do we have? How many infections do we have? And, and so that was, those were those conversations. And so with that backdrop, Joe calls. And so it was not common. 2.30 a.m. I just want to remind people, it's 2.30 a.m. calls. It was not common for an attending to call at that time. Like periodically we would get phone calls pre-pandemic in the middle of the night, but it was like, mm, this person might think they have TB. Well, they don't really, but you know, put them in a negative pressure room where you're in 95 and go about it. And Joe was like, um, this patient has a number of symptoms, but he's not old. I think the patient was 21 or something to that end, but there were, there were underlying conditions and he's like, he might, but he might not classify. And I was like, well, let me look at it. And so I reviewed through the chart and then I called Joe back and I said, okay, I I think we might be able to really ask for a test on this one. And so I had to call the CDC. You had to call the CDC for that. Yeah. At 2.45 in the morning. Let me let let me just say real quick for the listeners if they don't know, like there wasn't well, our hospitals didn't have tests because they they were trying to, de- to develop like we didn't have tests right. That was one of the the delays was getting testing out to people and so and there was only a I think a handful of tests and we pro- I probably need to bring on a microbiologist to really get at when that happened. Hang on, I'm I'm a little offended. I am the microbiologist. Yeah, yeah, but you didn't you weren't working <laughs> as a microbiologist. That and is fair. Different right, like a la- laboratory and microbiologist. Like we need like to get. Carrie Ann Burnham, Neil Anderson, Melanie Yarbrough. That's who we need to get on for that. But it was so dicey because we we didn't have any private companies that were, I mean, they were trying, but anyway. Okay, so you call the CDC at 2.30 a.m.? Yes. and Remember who you talked to? No, some guy who didn't really want to talk to me. And yeah, it's two thirty. I don't blame him. Yeah, well, you know, I was up. I figured he needed to be up too. And he probably had been up already. He had been probably, I'm sure. And we went through the the patient's case. And then he shunted me over to someone else and was talking about it. And then in the end, he's like, oh, wait a minute. You said that that patient had a history of vaping. We're not going to test him. And, and Joe's on, on the other phone. I'm, and so I'm like, what? You're not going to let me test on this one? He's like, no, no we're not going to do it. So I tell Joe and Joe was like, okay, well, I guess we're just not, but I'm going to treat him like he's positive. And in the end, who knows if he, he was. But in short order thereafter, when the state of Missouri got tests, so you had to send them all to the state health department, you still had to fill out paperwork and justify a test. And so the next one, we had a patient come into the ED. It was a beautiful spring afternoon. The sun was right. This was not 2.30 in the morning. Like this guy showed up at 11.30. In the, in the morning, we had all day and we filled out all the paperwork. I don't remember, Jason, you would remember his name, George. Yeah, Turbo Lizzie. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm a bunch of, George T. He still is. He's our state epi. George T, great guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so George and I had conversations and then George was like, I've got to go to a meeting. So I'm going to give you to Liz. And Liz was his primary epi on the side. And so we sat through and, and went back and forth on, on this patient's history and this patient's symptoms. And George reviewed it and then consulted with somebody and Liz and I are there and I'm still sitting down in the ED and I'm working with one of the docs who is gowned up and I'm like, okay, you need to check this box and you need to sign here and you need to think about this. And so we go through all this and this patient is sitting in a room to my left. I'm sitting at the desk, the physician's cubicle is behind me and all the nurses are over on my right. And he's not laboring. He, he's not in distress. He looks fine, but he's now been in there for multiple hours. And in the end, it was decided, no, his timeline doesn't match up. And he was in China and had been in China and then was in Taiwan and then back to China and then back to the States. And I remember sitting down with one of the ED nurses and Eric DeBerkey had a very detailed map. Eric was my medical director. An infectious disease doctor, adult ID doctor at WashU Barnes Jewish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had a detailed map of China. And so we sat there and, and looked through, okay, he said he was here. And the outbreak is here, so maybe it doesn't, but I mean, that was the point. And early on, we would, I would go down to the ED daily and be like, okay, here's the new updated hot button area. So anybody who's been to Utah can't be admitted now. And anybody who's been- Not admitted, to, what do you mean they couldn't be admitted? Like they had to be admitted on complete precautions. So if you had a travel history, I didn't, I don't care if you had a broken leg, you're coming in, you were in Utah, you're going to be suspect at this point. And, and that was, and we would update those daily. And so in the end, this gentleman was determined not to need a test. So, so I, that, kid, that guy didn't get a test. That okay. guy didn't get a test. Who's the first one you actually got tested and how long into it was it? So she, she it would have been later in March. And again, it was probably about a week later. I think these happen in, in consecutive weeks. So, you know, we were building up steam to sort of have this sort of situation prepared. And I took the kids to the playground and I was on call and it was another beautiful day, you know, warm, sunny. And when I'm on call or when I was on call, thankfully I'm not anymore. I would always carry a notebook with me. You know, I was that, that guy, so I could jot things down. I could get an MRN because I didn't have a computer with me always, but I could get the information. Yeah, you can take that person off of isolation. And I didn't have a notebook with me. And, and I get a call from the ED and they're like, Luke, we've, we've got a woman. She's got a fever. She's got a cough. She's got uh, shortness of breath, like all the hallmark symptoms. We didn't know about loss of taste or smell at, at this point. And then they were like, and the kicker. She was in Mexico on a booze cruise. I'm like what? <laughs> like okay, and and I start to think about this, and like let's let's walk through the timeline. And remember, I don't have any notebook. Lucy had brought sidewalk chalk. How old is Lucy at this time? At that time, Lucy was in second grade. So, so you got second grader, you're at the playground, and you have sidewalk chalk. Yeah, of course. Thank goodness for Lucy, by the way. Right, and Sam was probably laying face down in a mud puddle and Sa sam was five at that time then no sam sam would have been he would have been four three and a half four yeah he was probably three and a half he was still in kindergarten or at preschool at this point so like when they when they really shut things down and the kids didn't go back to school and i'll get back to the sidewalk talk in a minute 
he was at preschool and so we took him out of preschool and so jo is at home with them during the day so she's like lucy is virtually schooling a second grader mind you and sam is three and a half and we have always tried to limit screen time but Jay was like, here, have a screen. And Lucy, have a screen. Because Jay was trying to like keep her lab running. She's a scientist. People should know. His wife is this brilliant scientist. And so, and that, and she's in, in a, like her life has been up he too. But, but now she's the one at home doing all, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, I would be at the hospital between six and six 30 and she would manage the kids like taking care of homes, not homeschooling, virtually schooling, trying to run the lab, trying to keep Sam occupied all to this end. And, and then I would get home, you know, around six and then she would go to lab and she would work until midnight or, or later. And like being on the WashU campus at those hours as a, a, a woman, probably not always the safest being inside. But the labs were shut down for a while too. I mean, that was the other part, right? I was trying to, they were doing minimal stuff too. So it was crazy. They were, but you were, you had to like eke things along because there were cell lines and you had to, had to maintain the cell lines. But anyway, let's get back. So you're in the playground. So we're at the, we're, we're at the playground. Sidewalk chalk. Sidewalk chalk. Doing- and, and I start to take the history and, and walk all the way through this. And so I'm writing all of this in sidewalk chalk, bright yellow, mind you, on the the blacktop. And we're starting at one edge of the playground. And as I get through it, I'm like all I'm like I'm halfway through and I'm running out of space. And I and I think I finally have all this information. And then I realize that I have this history of a of a patient in public space. I, I didn't put any names, but I had a date of birth and I, I had a gender weird thing like oh travel to mexico that are these symptoms and so then i'm like okay kids we got to go home and then i was like but i can't leave this and so lucy had a water bottle or maybe sam had a water bottle and then this was where sam totally enjoyed it and so we're pouring water and like rubbing the sidewalk chalk off the off the ground so that we don't leave this behind and so i i take these two dirty messes who are you know they're now covered in sidewalk chalk and dirt and water and we go back to the house and i don't remember where jo was but then I called that, that team that was on, on call, like the command center. And they were like, we probably, yeah, we should all come in. We, we should come in and, and fill this paperwork out. Because I had, gotten, I had called the state and had gotten approval. And I was like, okay, I have approval to get a test. Pam Bruder, who was my associate chief nursing officer at the time, was like, well, let's all come in. And then she was like, no, we don't all need to come in. Luke, you come in and I'll come in and I'll meet you at the hospital. And so we go to the ED, this woman, the patient, sorry, was in the ED and we brought down an ICU nurse and this ICU nurse has, he's like changed into surgical scrubs and I check him out and make sure that he has all his correct gear on. He's got his eye protection and and his gown and his gloves. And I'm like, okay, you know how to do these samples. This is where it's going to go. And we fill out all the paperwork and then he goes in and tests him. And then we can't actually ship it to the state that night. We have to wait until the next morning because the courier wasn't running appropriately. So we finally get the test, but it doesn't go out until the next morning. And in the and then we had to wait. We waited three, I think it was three days. It, it was more than a day until, and then the state would call. Patient XYZ is positive or negative. And, and that the woman was, was negative to, to that end, but that was the first test that we had done. And Pam and I called the patient's primary from the conference room to sort of explain everything that was going on, which now seems completely ridiculous. But it comes back to 
this was unknown. We didn't know what to expect. And, and so that was, that was the, that was the testing. Do you remember the first patient that had it? Um, yeah, I do. She had actually been tested at Mercy's drive through and she had resulted positive, And then she presented to us as her symptoms worsened. So she had a deterioration and in the end, her whole family got it and her whole family had had to be admitted. And I can remember being in the ED that morning when she came in and we were walking through and, you know, we had gone through and what is the best route to take these patients through the hospital up to the unit and what could they, what could be safe and what should they wear? And so I was there to help manage and follow some of that through. Like we opened, there were wings in MOBAP that had been closed for a, a long time. And as part of the prep, we, we opened all these rooms and Bill Mellett, who is the director of facility services, was amazing. That, that gentleman put negative pressure in the rooms that shouldn't have had negative pressure into it because he could like cut holes and, and windows and slide them out. Like he did amazing things. Like if you want to be in a foxhole with people, you want Bill Mellett with you. And he had sort of worked through that, but like getting these rooms back up to service because because we had the space at MOBAP, we had the luxury to completely isolate these patients. Like they weren't interspersed with anybody else. And I know that not every hospital within the system had that, that luxury. And in the end, that, came, that became sort of problematic for us because the staff was like, well, no, now we can't have, like once people were vaccinated and, and things had been moved along, it's probably safe to have them next door to somebody else as long as they're wearing the appropriate PPE. But early on, everybody was this isolated away. Talk about the first surge. Talk about the surge of in April of, of 2020, right? That was your first foray. And, and, and you were like, what was it like when all of a sudden the positive started rolling in? It was, it was nuts because we tried to stay on top of all of the numbers and manage them ourselves. So these were tested, these were positive, these were negative. And until we had the automatic flags built in Epic. So Epic is our electronic medical record that we use within the system. And for IP over in the left-hand corner, there is ISO reason and then there's isolation. And the ISO reason is a, a little yellow thing that tells you, okay, this patient has this disease and they need gown and gloves, or they need gown gloves and a mask, or they need gown gloves and an N95. And we didn't have these automatic at that time. So they were coming in, we would have to put them in manually. And so we would, we would go through all of these tests and positive, negative, positive. And then we would report out that, that next morning. And it was, it was, oh, it was exhausting. And, and then you'd pull the patient and you'd review the notes and you'd get their MRN because you had to be able to track them and were they admitted or were they not admitted? And yeah. And, and then you're trying to educate people of, well, this is, this is what we feel is safe. And then you would have people who had watched the news and CNN showing pictures of people in Asia and they have on containment suits going in it. Well, why aren't we wearing that? Well, we don't, we don't think that's, that's necessary. Um, but I think it was getting things up and going was, it, it was just so exhausting. And like, as, as I had like thought about this stuff, like it gave me like anxiety all over again, which I was like, Oh, what was the, um, I mean, you guys had a, 
Didn't you guys create new ICUs? Didn't you make like units that became new ICU? What was that? We did. So that wasn't the first surge. Okay. That would have been Delta around Christmas and in, in January. So that wouldn't have been so. Uh, so Christmas, January of 2020 was still the original, the you know, the first strain, but it was a bigger surge. That first winter was a bigger surge than than the first April surge for sure. Right. And so during that time, and I think, I can't remember, it like, it's so crazy. You thought you'd never forget this stuff, but some of it's starting to run together. We did, we had, we ran out of ICU space. And so we turned, we had an old unit that was sort of an offshoot it had previously been the ICU before they remodeled all the ICUs, and we got that back up and going. And then we turned our cardiac cath lab into an overflow ICU. And Bill was able to make that space negative and, and put that in. So when we were tracking these, we had three ICUs in the main tower. We had this adjunct ICU, and then we had an ICU that was in the cardiac cath lab. And the cardiac cath lab then went to the old PACU. And so we were playing the shuffle game and pulling supplies and okay, well, we have to have a crash cart and, and do we have the cleaning supplies and do we have this, that, and it just, yeah, we had, and we had meetings all the time. Like we would have a meeting in the morning to talk about what we were going to do. Then we'd have a meeting in the midday to report the numbers and the progress and then a meeting in the afternoon. And then I would have the IPEC meeting. So I'm going to ask you a real tough one here. So we're recording this on February 3rd, 2023. If I look at Johns Hopkins website, that's what I look at for numbers. There's been 1,110,858 deaths due to COVID-19 in the United States. Do you remember the first death that you guys had? Do you remember around what, what it was like? Yeah. Um, it was an ICU patient. And it probably was early April. And in one of those meetings where we were reporting out numbers of positive numbers of tests, and we, we reported this, this patient's death and everybody just sort of, you know, I mean, people, people die in the hospital all the time, not, not to be calloused, but this was different. Yeah. I guess the other, the other thing, and I, I want to get your take on this. You know, one of the things that came out, right, because were there visitors allowed in the ICU? My guess is no. I don't think there were. I, I, yeah, I don't think there were. I think that's been one of the hardest things to talk about. I know around ICU staff and folks, right, is, you know, a lot of these people who died, and let's be clear, I just said 1.1 million, those that died early in the pandemic, they didn't die with a loved one next to them or holding their hand or anything. They, they died alone. And they were lucky if their nurse was there with them. Yeah, because if you're in that COVID isolation, and because we knew so little and you were seeing how sick people were, you didn't want to be, you wanted to be in there, do your work and take care of them, make sure they're okay, and then get out. I know I was, we were all the same way. Our ICU nurses, like ICU nurses are a special breed and I never they're was an ICU They're nurse. amazing. Was, they, they are, they're spectacular. And they had set up scenarios where all of the pumps and everything were actually outside of the rooms. And then they had like draped all of the tubing and everything in, and the vents and everything. And just, holy cow, probably not uh, the greatest thing for infection prevention. But at that point we were like, we're gonna go with it. So they were probably outside the room and those, those, those patients would, they, they knew like I, I see you docs and nurses know that like they, they know. And so they, they had probably expected it and, and maybe they were in the room. I, I don't know. I think that was hard. You know, when you hear those stories, especially among those staff, I mean, that was sad. All right. So I want to, I, I want you to tell me about what it was like during the Omicron surge. Um, Cause that was right before you joined whatever. And she knows that 
Luke now works with me as a nurse research coordinator. So he was a part of Omicron surge. And I can just say the Omicron surge to me surprised the heck out of me. And it was awful. I hated it. I mean, I was out, if there would have been another surge like that, I'd probably like, I'm done. You guys can have whatever. You can have my job. This is not what I like. So tell me, Luke, because Omicron surge, the numbers were just ridiculously high. So what was Omicron surge like for you? I think for us early on, our lab director, Frank, Frank Antonetti, maybe. Yeah, Italian, played soccer here in St. Louis, um, played soccer forever, retired just through the end and held on through parts of the pandemic, like postponed his his retirement so he could sort of help with the testing and, and everything. And then his replacement, but she had been sort of groomed and worked with Frank closely, was Jackie. And early on, Frank set up outdoor testing and not only just COVID testing, but everything like frank had set up a way that we could do blood draws we could do all of our other testing and and it was in the garage and it, the garage of mobap was away from the main hospital and so it sits at, off ballast road and there's a sort of a winding way to get in it's it's a pretty hospital it's a pretty campus and normally you would pull in and you would go to a waiting space and then they would call you and you would you would drive up through and thank goodness for that because poor sam got tested out there at least five times, you know, that he just, he was a champ. He's always been tested. And I can remember trying to get to the hospital right after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's. And there was nowhere to go because everyone was waiting in line to get tested. They were in parking lots and bill and security and local police had come out to sort of direct traffic in through there. And so that was sort of the, the real beginning to it. But the challenge with so many people with it impacting so many people that we didn't have enough staff, like staff were, were sick. And, and thankfully people weren't as sick. There were still lots of sick people, but, but it wasn't as bad as it had just been. The numbers were crazy. The numbers were stupid, crazy. And so we just, where would we put them? How full was the house? Uh, can we put people in? Can we double occupy? Do, do we have space to double occupy? And do we actually have enough nurses? And where are we going to pull these nurses from? And we're going to pull these L&D nurses, labor and delivery nurses over to care for these patients. And, and it, staffing for us was the biggest issue. And so we were driving lots of education of, hey, we know you're doing things in the hospital, but let's make sure we're doing things in our real lives. Let's take care of ourselves. Let's wear a mask, let's social distance. And, and this was around the holidays and people were sick of it and fed up. And lots of people had been vaccinated. All right, question number one on the, our closing. What was the hardest part of the pandemic for you? I think it had to do with the walls that came in, that got put up. Like professionally, there were lots of things that were, that were challenging and they were hard. But to see society in general give up the belief in science and facts to see the politicalization of that. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but we're just trying to like take care of people. And if you were in a red state or a blue state, you handle things differently. And, and my family and I have different political views and um, it, it put a wedge between my sister and I, I think that that was the, toughest thing. And I mean, here we are, like you said, three years later, um, we're still trying to work over that. At one point, we had not seen my parents at Christmas time for three straight years, because I was like, No, we're not coming. And my sister's like, Why not? Why aren't you coming? It's like, 
the numbers. That's why I'm not coming. And yeah, that, that was the, that was the hardest part. Yeah, yeah. All right. What was the most influential thing that someone has or had told you that helped you through the COVID-19 pandemic? That's I, you know, you you prepped me with this one and I had that question ahead of time and I just I, I don't have a good answer. I think really that that quote that Hillary and Rachel had sort of put together early on. It's like it's our it's our asses on the line. So we better we better get this right. And so I just think about how we had to work hard and think through and Hillary Hillary and Rachel worked so much harder than I did. Like I I did a lot of work. I feel like I did a lot of work. You did a lot of work. But the amount of work that those women did and and the way that they led is was was crazy. So some of the things that they had said. Yeah, they're pretty they're they're stinking amazing, man. They they they're uh and and Luke did tease you all. I I did talk with Hillary. She said she's coming on, so I can't wait to relive some of her stories. Now, we probably could do like 7 or 10 hours with her, but we're only going to do an hour, so we'll have to have to find the best stories. All right. So last three questions. These are all fun. This is going to be how we end it. Where would you go if you could visit any place on earth and why? I would go to wine country in Australia because well, I, I, I love food and wine. Jay and I spend too much discretionary income on, on wine. And when we started to drink wine, we were introduced by her parents and, and we started with Australian wine and the opportunity to go and like spend time in Barossa and, and really be in that space would, would be where I'd want to go. That's fun. Okay. What was your childhood dream job and why? I think there were two. After watching Top Gun, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Shoot, did you see Maverick? Because, man, I want to be, I want to still be a fighter pilot after seeing that thing. Yeah, it's a wonderful movie. Um, a lot of fun. And I wanted to be an orthodontist because I had really bad teeth growing up. Ah! Like, terrible teeth. By the way, he and has great teeth. My... You can't see him, but he has great teeth. <laughs> and my orthodontist put braces on me and, and fixed my teeth and how that made me feel. And so I wanted to be a, an orthodontist. And then I realized that I had to spend my day in people's mouths. And we're like, no. Hmm. All right, last question. What's the book you're reading currently? Currently. I am reading The Whalebone Theater by, I think her name is Olivia Kane. And, and I'm about halfway through it. And it's a story of a family in Dorset, England. And, and they're a prominent family. And the father, the patriarch, loses his first wife. And then he dies. And then it, it's the development of the family. And so the time frame on it is it begins in the Roaring Twenties and the, there are three children and it's their growing up and sort of like an artisan colony after the original father dies. And they build a theater out of these whale bones from this whale that washes up. And it, it's the story that comes through. And ultimately where it's going, World War II happens and the kids take positions in occupied France. Awesome. It, so far, it's, it's been great. It's a great read. All right. Gary Luke Starnes, I call him GL for short. Thank you so much for being the first guest on Capturing COVID. We all hope you enjoyed this. And uh, thanks, Luke. And I uh, hope you guys listen next time. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Capturing COVID with our first guest. Dr. Luke Starnes. 
In this episode, we touched on Luke's experiences as an infection preventionist at Missouri Baptist Hospital at the beginning and through the major part of the pandemic. He dealt with access to testing and personal protective equipment, creating solutions during the various surges of COVID-19, and making tough decisions during a time of complete unknown. I think one of my favorite parts is him talking about this guy that could change all the rooms and he, that's the one you want to be in the foxhole with. A clear message in this episode for me was how the BJC Healthcare System team, and I stress team, of infection preventionists from all the hospitals within the system helped each other through an already existing group called IPEC. It was also clear, and I was struck at the many people that Luke named, specifically Rachel Snyders and Hillary Babcock, who were the leaders of this IPEC, and it really suggested leadership, and I think we all know is important. So again, leadership and collaboration were essential for this group during such a hard time, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. So thank you, Luke, for sharing this experience with us. We have more to unpack from the pandemic, and this episode is just the start of our journey to hear stories, relate, and reminisce. Tune in for our next episode to hear from one of my great friends who became a friend because of the pandemic, Katie Smith. Katie is a sports medicine clinical operations manager at SSM Health and was a leader of the athletic task force in St. Louis at the beginning of the pandemic. Trust me, we have some great stories and memories, both good, and unfortunately, I got a bad one in this one. Can't wait to share with you all. I'd also like to thank Gabby Smith and Sheridan Thomas for producing our show. Until next time, have a great week.